Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs? I'm going to read a verse from Proverbs chapter 28, verse 26, looking at some proverbial wisdom and leaving the text of Revelation this morning, but not leaving the theme and the message of Revelation, but using a different text to expound some of the pastoral issues that come out of our study in Revelation. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 26 says this, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Some very plain, forthright speaking uh, to us, speaking very directly to us about a particular component of discipleship. The question of whether to trust our thoughts or to not trust our thoughts. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Lord, bless your word, I pray. Multiply it. Make it greater than we ever imagined, I pray. It's for your glory and for our thriving, our profit, our gracious benefit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a culture, I think, that is somewhat intoxicated with their own thoughts. You ever think about our culture? There's a, an imbibing of this idea that our thoughts are somehow the creation of realities instead of the wonderful gift of exploring realities. It's almost like, and I, and I hear this all the time, and I, and I catch it in myself sometimes as well, this, this idea that somehow by, by me saying, well, I think, or well, I believe, is speaking as if I was the God of Genesis chapter 1, let there be. <laughs> when I say I think or I believe, it actually doesn't create anything. And we forget that sometimes. He who trusts in his own mind is a fool. It is a verse that I want to emphasize a fundamental component of discipleship. And it is this, it is the humility to exchange our own thoughts for God's thoughts. To exchange our own thoughts for God's thoughts. You've, perhaps you've heard of the great exchange with regard to, to righteousness, or our, our unrighteousness for his righteousness. The great exchange, it's a wonderful way to think about the gospel and about Christianity. Well, Christianity also involves a great thought exchange. And it's very humbling for us. He who trusts in his own mind is a fool. The thought exchange is this, to exchange our thoughts for God's thoughts. But it's a huge step. It's a, a dramatic shift that is necessary, as I say, as a component of discipleship. And I'm not merely speaking of, of unbelievers, people who do not yet know the Lord, but for us as believers also, the temptation that we have sometimes to, to take all of the things that we, that we take in as, as Christians. And the, the model, or the, I'll use the word paradigm, but simply the, the model that, that we use to understand the gospel, the, the model that we use to, to understand truth, to learn about God, and to learn about ourselves, and to try to understand what is out there, and what the future holds, and, and how to live, still finds its ultimate judgment rooted in our own mind, where we reserve final judgment on, on all of those things as a, as a filter for what we deem to be reasonable, what we think is rational, what we think how things ought to be. <laughs> and so I find this proverb very relevant. In my own life and in the world in, in which we live, he who trusts in his own mind is a fool. The capacity to distrust our mind, to know that 
We do not reserve final judgment with ourselves as to what is really out there and what should be. And I intend the text also as a, as a supplement, as I mentioned earlier, to our series on the book of Revelation. And I believe that one of the goals of going through this particular book, you'll never remember all of the sermons that we've gone through. And still, you'll, you'll open the book, and, uh, book of Revelation and you go, oh, you know what, I can't remember what that was all about. But, but overall, sometimes we're, we're left with a, a general impression in the wake of the series of Revelation and all of the time that we spend in it. One of the goals that we have is to change your perception of the book itself. I don't know what was in your mind when you heard that we were going to be going through the book of Revelation. They go, oh man, that, 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 it's that book. And some image, some perception came into your mind of how you perceive that book. It's not there to scare us. It's not there to perplex us. John is a pastor. Imagine writing a document to perplex your congregation. It's not there to cause us to speculate about things. It's not there to tell us that Apple is the Antichrist. We, we already know that, right? You leave your phone at the desk on the way out. So. <laughs> it is a book with a clear pastoral objective. That's what I want you to understand about the book as, as, as we leave the book, as, we, as you think about it again in the future, I want you to understand that, that it is a final book of the Bible written by a pastor to churches that were vulnerable in many other areas, including this area, their thoughts, their thinking, how to think about the world. And John's objective is pastoral, to set to get God's thoughts about our world, to get God's mind on, on how things are, forsaking our, our, our thoughts. Because you see, this is where the churches in Revelation were most vulnerable. He who trusts in his own mind is a fool. Yes, they were Christians. Yes, they were, they, they were in, in, in churches. But there was the temptation to trust their own thoughts when it came to how to sort things out in this world, what to do with the institutions of this world, the idols that are in this world, the... The stuff of this world, our doctrine, our sexuality, our marriages, a vulnerability to, to think their own thoughts. And so the visions, in the visions, John is giving them so they not only have hear the, the mind of God, they see the word of God, literally. That's why the book is written not just in a, in a didactic way, that that's been the, the case of these same truths through all of the rest of the Bible, but in a new and fresh way. Those same truths are turned into a prophetic vision where the eyes can lay hold of things and, and imagine them in a, in a new and, and very significant way to literally see the wisdom of God. And this is what the pastoral goal of the book of Revelation is. I, I, we've gone far enough in the book now that I think I can use this vocabulary that you that have been a part of this series will understand what I'm talking about. John doesn't want his people to be beast followers. He wants them to be lamb followers. That's the, the purpose of the book when you think about the book. Oh yes, that's that book written by a pastor that warns us and, and, and encourages us and gives us a path to not be beast followers, but to be lamb followers instead. And it's a very, very significant book. Ultimately, it's a battle for our thoughts. So here's the main point that I'd like you to take home with you today. If, I, if I've already lost you, uh, please come back just for a second. And this is what I'd like you to take home with you, that, that lamb followers, the Christians, it's, that's simply what I mean by lamb followers, Christians, 
that we fight a continual spiritual battle to be humbled in our minds, to exchange our thoughts for God's thoughts, forsaking our own thoughts in every aspect of, of faith and life, a, a certain humility of disposition before God, a certain capacity in discipleship to receive something from the outside that makes sense of our world with a submission to it that says, yes, I will believe that. Whose thoughts are you going to think? Very few of us actually have an original thought. I don't anyway. I get thoughts from places. So do you. Whose thoughts are you going to think? Revelation is the pastoral objective to think God's thoughts. And the goal is perseverance. The goal is to, is to win. The goal is to, to make our way in this world as lamb followers without giving up. And part of that is to lay hold of the mind of God. A big part of it. So force Simple points I'm going to work through this morning to spiritual realities to consider for a humble mind. And the first one is that the capacity to have thoughts at all, <laughs> and we all have thoughts, but the capacity to have thoughts at all is both our greatest human marvel and our greatest human vulnerability in our spiritual life. Secondly, that we live our lives where there is a cultural aversion to God's thoughts. Do you think about culture? I think it's significant and important as Christians to think clearly and significantly about the culture in which we live and the way that it handles us. Thirdly, it's, it's the path of thriving. Thank the Lord. God does not hate us. <laughs> Reading through Deuteronomy chapter, uh, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 1, they say to Moses over and over, the people says, yeah, the Lord brought us out here. He hates us. Yeah, sure. Yeah, after all that you've seen, after you're standing on the, the, the hillside watching Pharaoh be drowned in the sea, singing the song of Moses, yeah, yeah, he hates you for sure. I'm sure he hates you. <laughs> God does not hate us. He gives us his mind because he loves us and he wants us to thrive. Fourthly, that this is the way of Christ himself. And the way that he lived, it is to have the mind of Christ, who lived not his own thoughts, but the thoughts of another, the thoughts of his father. A very profound thing. Firstly, the capacity to think is itself to, to be fearfully and wonderfully made, isn't it? What a marvelous thing. Aren't you glad you're amongst the creation of God that received his image in such a way that can think his thoughts? It's marvelous, it really is. To have any thoughts at all about reality, to be able to, to think about what is really out there is a wonderful mark of, of God's image upon us. Just think of how unique you are. Just think of how distinct you are from all the rest that, that, that God has made. I was up early this morning and enjoying the beautiful sunrise coming over the horizon. And, you know, there's nothing else in God's creation that can sit and say, that's beautiful. You know, your dog's sitting there thinking, more sausage, please. <laughs> this is how Adam and Eve were made. They were absolutely unique in the garden to be able to think God's thoughts. Imagine, God, God, out of all of the creatures in the garden, God didn't speak to any of them. He spoke to Adam and Eve. He gave Adam and Eve his thoughts. This is a random rabbit hole, but if you've ever had any inclination to look into epistemology, do it. Don't be scared of it. 
Don't think that, oh, if I look into philosophical things too much, my Christianity will fail. <laughs> Christianity stands in, 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 in the heat. You throw at it whatever you want from this world. You throw at it any kind of philosophy, any kind of worldview, and it stands. Thank the Lord. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for that. Epistemology is simply the, the science of how do we know, or the philosophy of how do we know uh, what's true, and how do we gain knowledge, and how do we test it? And I was reading through, looking through R.C. Sproul's catalog of stuff. It's on Right Now Media, which you can subscribe to through the church if you get in touch with the office. Right Now Media, R.C. Sproul, The Consequences of Ideas. A fabulous summary of the history of thinking in this world and how history shapes the thoughts of our culture today and how the gospel stands, stands in the midst of it all with integrity, with intellectual honesty. Praise the Lord. But this is how Adam and Eve were made, with the capacity to think, and this is exactly where Satan attacks them, in their capacity to think about God. And it is where he sought to deceive them most, first. You see, that's where we're most remarkable, but, but most vulnerable. And where we are most marvelous is where we are most viciously attacked. We saw this in Revelation chapter 12, where in his war on the saints, the, the dragon thrown from heaven, it knows his time is short. Amen, yes, he is correct. Come, Lord Jesus. His time is short, and out of his mouth, it says, Genesis chapter 3 all over again, out of his mouth comes a flood of deception that flows. Why? In order to wipe out God's people. He who trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. This is the nature of the battle we are in for our souls, to, to receive God's mind. Are you, are you willing to receive God's mind? And that's John's goal in the book, to, to give them God's mind, to, to give to the churches. It's a profound thing, to give to the churches the mind of God about the world in which they're living. As I said, and I'll say as a second point, that we live in a culture that has imbibed on the idea that we know best. Every time I read through the Psalms, and I read through the Psalms habitually, beginning to end, as I read also through other parts of the Bible, whenever I get to Psalm 73, 9, it, it strikes me. It says that they set their mouths against the heavens. Isn't that interesting? How do you set your mouth against heaven? <laughs> well, you prefer your own thoughts above God's thoughts. That's how you do it. And it says, and their tongues strut through the earth. <laughs> An incredible word picture of Tongues strutting. I mean, it doesn't say that their legs strut through the earth. Their, their tongues strut through the earth. It's a very vivid picture of, of an intellectual autonomy that's rooted in a spiritual arrogance that is isolated from God. And I think that our culture has a particular vulnerability to it. We've been raised in the God is dead culture. And guess what? If God is dead... He doesn't speak. It shuts up the thoughts of God and we're intoxicated with the 
the idea of, of self-governance, of, of sorting this world out. After all, we're basically good, right? All we need is time and the right technology and our own ability to reason will work things out in this world for good. And you feel like saying to the world, don't you? How's that going for you? This is why there's so much cynicism in the world today. That's why there's so much despair. Because it doesn't work. It's not true. It's not our world. He who trusts in his own mind is a fool. Now, so if you went to your doctor, or you went to your, your physician, and you, they told you that looking at your records, looking at your family history, looking at where you live, looking at what you do for a living, you have a predisposition for heart disease. What would you do? Well, maybe it's not a good question. You might go home and have a bowl of ice cream. I, I really don't know what you would do. But would at least you would consider that, that you would have information that would make you mindful about certain things in your life. Well, there's not only physical physicians, there's a spiritual physician as well. And what if the, uh, the spiritual physician said to you, because of the place you live, because of the age in which you live, because of the culture in which you live, you have a spiritual predisposition. What would you do? Well, this is what Christians do. They open their Bible and say, I want the mind of God. I want to know his thoughts. See, the, the, the Bible isn't a, a spiritual bullet to fix everything in your life. It's not something that will, it's not to make you feel better about yourself. It's not where your identity comes from. Your identity is given, not earned. Read the Bible. To read it profitably is to open it and say, I want God's thoughts. I want to think the thoughts of God. To know his mind in the world. But it's a huge shift to know that we are, we are not at the center. Right? We're not at the center. Talked about this when we went through our Reformation series last fall. That all is for the glory of God. That, that we are the objects of salvation, not the reason for salvation. The reason for salvation is the glory of God. But we are the objects of salvation. And God created us good. Thank the Lord. He created us good. But he did not create us best. We are not best. He reserves that for himself. Paul says to the Corinthians, Where is the wise one? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Consider yourself... Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. And God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. See, in seeking God, there is something even more fundamental than looking and studying the attributes of God, which, which I hope you do. I hope that you've done that. I hope you've found the amazing literature that Christian history has gifted to us about the doctrines of the attributes of God because you can't love somebody that you don't know and the more you know him you will love him he is glorious but there's something even more fundamental to being a Christian than studying the attributes of God and and it is this it is it is a disposition of the heart that is willing to allow God to be who he is forsaking our filters, not reserving judgment for ourselves of how he, we think he ought to be. The Bible isn't a spit-and-chew book. There's lots of spit-and-chew books out there, a lot of Christian books that are spit-and-chew, but the Bible isn't one of them. 
It's all true. Thank the Lord. Thirdly, that this is how we thrive. The last half of that verse says, he who finds wisdom walks in safety. What a wonderful promise. I want to walk in safety in this world? How, how deluded we are in our, in our thinking that, that we have the wisdom to best know the path of safety. But humbly casting our thoughts aside to, to prefer God's thoughts is the true path of thriving. I, I have found this over and over and over in my life. You see, God didn't merely assemble a physical universe, put all the bits and baubles together in order for us to explore and discover, which is a tremendous privilege as Christians in science to do just that, explore and discover all of the things that, that God has given to us to, to explore. But he didn't just make a physical world. It says that Proverbs 3 says that he founded the world with wisdom. Do you believe that? that? That there is a wisdom that corresponds with the creation of the world. There is a wisdom that is aligned with absolutely anything and everything that you could possibly experience in this world because God founded the world in wisdom. There is no thing that you can handle in this world that you can say, well, I guess there's no wisdom about this. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's all about saying that there is something outside of ourselves. There is a grid. There is something that, that a model that is outside of yourself. And this is the very thing that there is such a cultural aversion to in our world is, is, is this whole idea of revelation, of an outside grid that makes sense of our world. And we say, thank you very much. I can make sense of it myself. But that's what revelation is all about, that there is an outside grid grid that if we will listen he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches that if we will listen that it makes sense of the world in which we live and we will thrive there because it's it's congruent with the one who made it it's not brainwashing god loves us and if you try to live as a christian and take from Christianity what you think is good and maybe the good points and reserve final judgment of what you think should be in your own mind, it won't go well for you. You'll be frustrated. This has been my experience. Please hear this. Sometimes it is the thoughts about God and about this world that are most adverse to my own thinking that I most need to be able to thrive. Sometimes the things that you most chafe against, against God, are the things that, that we most need in our hearts to beating, pulsing in us, to live and to, to thrive in, in the midst of, of adversity, in the, in the midst of, of temptation, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of perplexity. Deuteronomy chapter 4, God says this to the people, I've given you my word, go into the land and the people will marvel. Where did you get such wisdom? Isn't it amazing? Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look at it sometime. You keep my word, Moses says to the people, and the people will go, who has ever known such a thing to be that a God has drawn near and given a people such wisdom? And Moses goes on to say, but, but this is what you're going to do. You're going to prefer your own thoughts over God's thoughts. And you know what? It's kind of what you sense sometimes in evangelical culture. We're embarrassed about God's wisdom. We don't even want to say what we believe. <laughs> it's the path of thriving. It really is. And finally, it's, it's, it's the path of Christ. To exchange our thoughts for God's thoughts is to have the mind of Christ. 
who exchanged his thoughts for the Father's. Not that Jesus ever had any wicked thought or any impure thought whatsoever. Yet he entirely deferred to the Father's thoughts. So it's not second class. The Son thrived in deferring to the Father. And the Son trusted the Father's thoughts. So much so that Philippians chapter 2 says that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, which is where it says to have the mind of Christ. And, and I think this is key in the mind of Christ. He not only trusted the Father with his path to the cross, but at the root of it, he trusted that he was secure in his Father's love. The Father loves me. And I think that this is a place where the beast most wants to deceive God's people. Are you really, truly loved? And it's a place where we need to exchange our thoughts for God's thoughts. You are loved. In the midst of your weakness, in the midst of your frailty, in the midst of the things that are beyond our capacity even to love ourselves or think, how could anybody? God loves us. Christianity isn't all about loving others. It's first of all knowing that we are loved, which gives us the freedom and the liberty to love others. So lead us to the table in just a moment. The table is a place of exchanging our thoughts for God's thoughts. Have you ever repented of your thoughts? I mean, just think about it for a minute. Have you ever deliberately, self-consciously repented of, of your thoughts and in whatever corridor of life it might be in, that's, this is a good place to do that. As you hold the elements, as you eat the bread, as you drink the cup. See, I said Revelation gives us the ability to see the wisdom of God. This is to eat the wisdom of God. You're eating God's wisdom. You're being nourished by, these are not our thoughts. These are God's thoughts. It wasn't our thoughts that ever would have thought that such dominion could be secured through such weakness. And there's, there's, there's a time to be silent before the Lord. Habakkuk 2.20 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Meaning he's, he's on the move on behalf of his people. He's engaging his people in order to, to live and dwell in their presence. That's what this table is all about. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent. In other words, you can't add. There's nothing that we could say that would make God's thoughts towards us any better. In fact, we're better off just to be quiet. <laughs> Let them be silent. Just, just, I'll say it nicely. <laughs> just be quiet. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Isaiah 55, hear, hear that your soul may live. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Lord, help us to live humbly, walk humbly uh, before our God.